I want to jump right in with uh, Scripture this morning. Revelation 22.12 is Jesus speaking. And he says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. Jesus brings this up repeatedly. He makes a big deal about it, that he has a reward for his faithful servants. Other than the wedding feast, Jesus mentions his reward for his people more often than any other thing that's going to happen when he returns. It's, he's really, really excited about it. He is really excited about it. It's a big deal to him, so it better be a big deal to us. Now, I don't know exactly what the reward is, but when he says it's worth you dying for, it must be pretty valuable. Right? He says, be very, very, very glad when people treat you wrongly because of me, because great is your reward in heaven. I don't know what that might look like. It's certainly not physical riches because the streets are paved with gold. If you want a wallet full of pavement, you go right ahead. But whatever it is, is eternally valuable. And Jesus said it is worth me dying for. And he told us it's worth you dying for. So it's a big deal. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 8 and then 14 and 15, he says, Paul writes, Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So here Paul says, Based on the works of our life, we have a reward. Some people will be in heaven without a reward. If your life burns up in the fire, there's nothing of eternal value. You yourself will be saved, but only as through fire. But if you have built your life on something that endures, which means eternally enduring, there's a reward. In Matthew 16:27, Jesus says, "For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works." In Romans chapter 2, Paul explains a little bit about what this is going to look like. He says, "Because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed." He will judge everyone according to what they have done. He will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking after the glory and honor and immortality that God offers. But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. There will be trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps on doing what is evil, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. But there will be glory and honor and peace from God for all who do good. For the Jew first and also for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. Here in verse 10, he makes an amazing statement. He says, there will be glory and honor and peace for us from God. God will give you glory and honor. For how you have lived your life in faithfulness to him. 
Jesus told the Pharisees, you do what you do publicly, you've already received your reward, you will have nothing from me. But if you pray in secret, if you fast in secret, if you give in secret, I will shout it from the rooftops. That's almost incomprehensible. That the king of the universe, the God of gods, the Lord of lords, would give us honor and praise, but he is going to. He is going to line every believer up from world history. He's going to bring you up to the front, and he's going to brag on your obedience. That's amazing. Here's what Peter tells us about it. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. Be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. Praise and honor and glory to you from Jesus. That's so backwards, it's almost hard to accept. But that's what it says. Jesus says his reward, whatever it is, is a big deal. He said it is worth us dying for. Peter says, be really, really excited when bad things come your way. I mean, be beside yourself giddy when you're treated wrong. Because great is your reward. It's worth it. Whatever it is, it's worth it to respond correctly with love and forgiveness and faith. So, I want you to have a big reward. That is, gen- is genuinely, truly one of my main reasons for doing this job is that I want, when you meet Jesus, I want to see a big smile on his face and yours, that it's a day of joy and reward, not a day of shame and regret. Because it will be for a lot of people. I want you to serve him faithfully and successfully. I want him to be proud of you. I want your meeting with him to be full of joy. When Jesus returns, the Bible describes several events that are going to happen. There's a wedding, there's a feast, but there's also this reward. Every single one of us will stand in front of every believer from world history, one at a time. And Jesus will bring us up front and brag on us. Or not. I want to be one that he's proud of. I want to be one that he says, this guy did something valuable. I know not most of what I do is, but something. Yeah? Every one of us, he will review our life and reward us for the things that we've done for his glory and his kingdom. I have a couple movie clips that I want to show you, and I know that anything Hollywood does is pretty paltry, pretty pathetic compared to what it's actually going to be like when we meet Jesus. But just for a starting point, for something that, to put in your imagination that's in mine so that we can talk about this, uh, I want to show you uh, this first movie clip. So here we go. All right, so that's the end of episode four, uh, which was the first one, for those of you who are confused. All right, so... Okay, I realize Hollywood is pretty pathetic compared to how it's really going to be when we really meet Jesus, the King of Kings, the Lord of the universe. It's going to be much more pageantry and beauty and holiness and power and wonderfulness, but it will look something like that. 
where Jesus is going to bring his entire army into the room, and they've just won this battle. Luke Skywalker and Han Solo have destroyed the Death Star and defeated Darth Vader, and they bring in the whole Rebel Alliance army, and they march them in front of everybody and give them the medals, and everybody's cheering. That's Jesus with you, right? Mikhail, when you meet Jesus, if the angel band breaks into the Star Wars theme, I'm going to love it. (laughs) Wouldn't that be awesome? If the angel trumpets start blowing the Star Wars main theme, oh, yes! All right. So, okay, so I know it's, it's a really small example, but it, it's just a starting point for how to think about this. What's this going to look like when Jesus says, I'm coming and I have a reward for you and I'm going to give you glory and honor and praise in front of all the men and angels, heaven and earth. Everyone will know your story. The parts that you haven't already ruined by bragging about them. Right? He told the Pharisees, you've ruined your reward because you did it for show. You did your righteousness for show. The things you do in secret, I will scream them from the housetops. All of the universe will know the price you paid to obey me, the things you endured, the things you forgave, the responses of faith that you had. Are you with me? Yeah? Okay, so here's a second movie clip. This is the end of the Return of the King in the Lord of the Rings series where Aragorn is crowned king. Tolkien was a solid Christian believer. He's got a lot of spiritual parallels in this story. We have a king who's receiving his crown. He meets his bride that they've been separated from for a long time. They're both fighting their parts in the battle and and, uh, then they're reunited and then he has a reward for the people who have served him and won him his kingdom. It's actually a pretty amazing allegory. Uh, It's a beautiful, beautiful story. I know it's nothing compared to Jesus, but let's watch. So in both of these stories, we have this epic battle, and at the end of the battle, the people who fought the battle are, are honored. And what are they rewarded for? They're rewarded for winning the battle. The hobbits could have chosen to stay home and just stay hobbits. You know, Han Solo was, had his smuggling career, and he could have stayed running from Jabba the Hutt, but he joins the battle. So a question I have for you is, is those of you who know the story, those stories, what kind of character does Han Solo have? I believe Leia's word for him is you're a scoundrel. Yes? Yeah, he's not a nice guy. He's selfish. He's got his own agenda. He's always figuring out how he can make a dime and how he can benefit out of what he does. But in the end, he's on the right side. Are you with me? In that Lord of the Rings story... Pippin is one of the four hobbits. He's an absolute idiot. He's always getting them in trouble doing stupid stuff. But in the end, he has courage and he fights, even though he's small. Frodo has the ring, and in the end, he refuses to throw the ring in the fire. He succumbs to temptation. He succumbs to evil. It's actually Gollum that takes the ring into the fire, and there's all these spiritual pictures and correlations there, but Frodo doesn't win. His own battle. He succumbs to the evil of the ring, but he's still on the right side. Are you with me? They're rewarded for winning the right for winning the battle, for helping the king win the battle. So when Jesus comes with his reward, he says, What I have for you is worth you dying for. It's worth you fighting for. It's not a participation trophy. Hello? Jesus isn't going to come back and say, well, you went to church, and you went to Sunday school, and you went to that Toby Mac concert, so here's your trophy. Well, you went to Jesus culture, and you went to church camp, so here's your merit badge. What Jesus has is not a participation trophy. Don't just show up and get one. 
And it's not a reward that everybody automatically gets. Second John, John tells us, take care that you don't lose your full reward. In Colossians, Paul says, don't get cheated out of your reward by following false teachings. Jesus said that he would be ashamed of some of his followers when he comes back. And in 1 John 2, John says, you abide in him so that you aren't ashamed when you meet him. Not everybody will get the same reward. That's very clear in the parable of the talents and the parable of the minus. There are people who are more faithful than others. You don't just get to suck off of somebody else's faith. You have your own life and your own battle, and you must forgive what you must forgive. You must do what you must do. You must accomplish what the Lord puts in front of you. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Yeah. It isn't just something that automatically comes. And another thing that Jesus' reward is not, is it is not a bribe so that we will be good. Jesus didn't say, if you will live your life and be well behaved, I'll give you a prize when you get to heaven. Your parents taught you that. Some of you parents, you do that with your kids. Don't raise your hand. That's a really, really bad parenting strategy. Son, we're going in the grocery store. If you don't throw a fit, I will give you a lollipop. Son, we're going to grandma's this afternoon. If you will behave yourself, we'll give you a cookie. You're teaching your kids that if they're just not bad, then they get a prize. Jesus, in all the scriptures that I just gave you, he says you have a reward for doing good, not for not being bad. The Pharisees somehow got the idea that the goal of life was to not be bad. The goal of life was to be well-behaved, follow all the rules, don't get in any trouble. And Jesus made it very clear how much he hates that thinking. Because all they did was try to stay out of trouble instead of doing good. Hello? When you tell your kid, I'll give you a prize if you don't act bad, it's a bribe. It's not a reward. A reward comes from actually doing something rather than not doing something. Jesus' reward is not a bribe. It is not a participation trophy. It is a reward for people who accomplish something, who win the battle of faith. We've been taught inadvertently by our parents and maybe even by our preachers that the opposite of sin is not sinning. Being well-behaved is not the opposite of sin. Doing good is the opposite of sin. Because sin is an action, its opposite must be an equal and opposite reaction. Come on. So, unfortunately, lots of people have the idea that what Jesus wants is for me to be a good person until I die or he comes back, and when we meet, he will be happy that I was a good person. That's a really, really bad idea. That's not what Jesus wants. He wants action. I want you to be richly rewarded. I want you to have a large and full and joyful reward. So, the question of this morning is, What does Jesus want? I'm telling you, it's not that he wants you to be a good person. He does not want you to be well-behaved. That is not his goal. No way am I saying you don't have to worry about your sin. We've all got our sin battles, but dealing with sin is so far down at the bottom of the foundation that that's that's not even what reward is about. What is Jesus looking for? What does he want? Well, I want to read you a story of a man named George Ritchie who was, when he was 19, drafted 
to go to World War II. This is in the 1940s. He's 19 years old, almost 20. And while he is in basic training, he contracts tuberculosis and he dies very briefly before he's resuscitated. And while he is gone, he meets God. And I want to read to you what happens to him. Given by a medical doctor named George Ritchie. He was a young soldier preparing to be shipped overseas during World War II when he developed a case of tuberculosis. It quickly escalated and he died for several minutes before being resuscitated. During that brief time, he was shown several aspects of eternity. At one point, he was brought before the Lord to be judged. As Dr. Ritchie described it, in some inexplicable way, everything he had ever thought or done was played out before him. Every detail of 20 years of living was there to be looked at. The good, the bad, the high points, the run of the mill. With this all-inclusive view came a question from God. It was implicit in every scene and, like the scenes before them, seemed to proceed from the living light beside me. What did you do with your life? Here's a 19-year-old, almost 20. He's just died and he's standing before God. And he says, God is a living light in front of me. And I see all of my life at the same moment in time. It's outside of time, so somehow that happens. And it makes sense. It's literally true that your life flashes before your eyes. He said, God was examining my life with one question. What did you do with your life? It seemed to be a question of value, not fact. Let me read that again. You've got to get that sentence. It seemed to be a question of value, not facts. God was not looking at his life to find out what he did. God already knew what he did. If God asks a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. God does not need facts. God was examining his life not to see were you a bad boy or were you a good boy. It is, did anything you do have any eternal value? Are you with me? God was looking for value, not for facts. What did you accomplish with the precious time you were allotted. And with this question shining through them, these ordinary events of my fairly typical boyhood seemed not merely unexciting, but trivial. Hadn't I done anything lasting, anything important? Desperately, I looked around me for something that would seem worthwhile in light of this blazing reality. It wasn't that there were any spectacular sins, just normal sexual hang-ups and secretiveness of most teenagers, But if there were no horrendous depths of sin, there was no heights of righteousness either. Only an endless, short-sighted, clamorous concern for myself. Hadn't I ever gone beyond my own immediate interests, done anything other people would recognize as valuable? At last I located it, the proudest moment of my life. I became an Eagle Scout, I shouted at God. Again, words seemed to emanate from the presence beside me. That glorified you. And it was true. As he meets God, God is examining his life not to decide whether he had more good deeds than bad, not to decide if he was a bad boy or a good boy. It was, where's the value? Jesus said in his parable, when I return, I want to know what you give me, the return you give me on my investment. God's not judging his life in condemnation. He is looking for, what did you do for me what did you do that has any value at all besides paying your own bills and building your own life and he couldn't find anything if he's an eagle scout he's a really good boy a really really good kid 
God says it's completely worthless to me. So what is valuable to Jesus? What is he going to reward? What is it? If we want to earn this reward, if we want it, and we do, trust me, we do. If if it's the thing Jesus is most excited about, we want it. What What is he looking to reward? What does he want? What is valuable to him? In Luke chapter 16, Jesus says, What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. Money is detestable in God's sight. Success, us having nice, little, organized, clean lives and stay out of trouble, having good reputations, it's not what God wants. It doesn't have any eternal value. There's some scriptures that tell us about how Jesus might think. As this king returning with a value or with a reward, going to look at our lives for value. What is it that he wants? What is he looking for? It isn't what is highly valued among people. He's looking for something else. There's a story in 2 Samuel about King David, and David is a model of Jesus. So this gives us a picture of who Jesus is and how he thinks. This is one of uh, David's battles against what is now the country of Syria. And this is in, in the same time period as his fall with Bathsheba. He murders her husband, and it's a big mess. That story is during this time, but it's a different episode. I'm going to read to you from 2 Samuel 12. And it says, Joab fought against Rabbah, that's the city, of the people of Ammon and took the royal city. So Joab is King David's general. He's David's nephew, actually. Even though he's older than David, he's David's nephew. Joab is his general. He fights against this city, Rabbah, and he takes it. Cities in those days had their wall around, and it took a little while to build a tunnel underneath the wall or to build a ramp of dirt against the wall or to bring in the battering ram and knock the gate through. So the battles took a while. So Joab has been fighting for a while, and David has not come. Joab has been fighting the battle by himself with this army, and David has not been there to lead the army. So it says, Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah and have taken the city's water supply. Now therefore gather the rest of the city, the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called after my name. So David gathered all the people together and he went to Rabbah and he fought against it and took it. Then he took their king's crown from his head. Its weight was a talent of gold with precious stones and it was set on David's head. Also he brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance and he brought out the people who were in it. And he put them to work with saws and iron picks and iron axes, and he made them cross over to the brickworks. So he did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. So David is a picture of Jesus here. This is actually a picture of the return of Jesus. Joab has been fighting this battle for probably for weeks, and David has been away. And Joab understand something about what it means to be a servant, what it means to serve a king, and and something that we do not understand. Joab sends a message to David, and he says, hey, we're about to win the city. You better get here and lead the army on the last day of battle. You better be here to win it so that you are the conquering king. Joab has done all the work, and he sends a letter to his king saying, get down here so that you get the glory. This is the return of Jesus. We have been fighting battles for 2,000 years. On the very last day, Jesus will show up and win the battle, and he's the one who gets the crown. And that's the way it's supposed to be. That is not selfishness on his part at all. 
you got to understand, you're serving a king. You are not fighting your own battles. You're fighting his. You're serving him. This is not your life. It's his life. Right? It's not our glory. It's his glory. Right? So Joab says, David, you better get here. Right? Joab is an absolute idiot. He is in trouble all the time. He is full of ambition. He is selfish. He's a murderer. He is a bad dude, but he is a great general. And David keeps him in place and he lets him fight his battles because he wins and because Joab knows who's in charge. David is Joab's king. This is a picture of what will happen when Jesus returns. We have been fighting our battles. We've been fighting against the enemy and at the very last day, Jesus will arrive and we will defeat the enemy king and he will take Satan's crown off of his head and put it on his own. And he will be the one who gets all the glory for the battles we fought. This story shows us how we are to respond to Jesus. But there's a story in Joshua, 200 and some years earlier than this, that shows what Jesus will do to us after the battle. Check this out. From Joshua chapter 10, this is the story where Joshua actually stops the sun from moving in the sky, if you're familiar with that. This is the third battle in the book of Joshua. There was the first one that was uh, the battle of Jericho where they march around and the walls fall. And then there was the battle of Ai, which they got slaughtered in because the guy took some of the loot from Jericho, which they weren't supposed to. So they execute him and they repent to God and they go back. And this is the third battle where they try again and they win. So from Joshua chapter 10. Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. So the Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes to Beth Horon, and struck them down as far as Azekah and Makeda. And it happened as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Beth Horon that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day that the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. And there has been no day like that before it or after it that the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. But these five kings had fled and hidden themselves in the cave at Makeda. And it was told Joshua, saying, The five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makeda. So Joshua said, Roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. Do not stay there yourselves, but pursue your enemies and attack their rear guard. Do not allow them to enter their cities, for the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. And then it happened while Joshua and the children of Israel made an end of slaying them with a very great slaughter till they had finished, that those who escaped entered fortified cities, and all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Makeda in peace. And no one moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring out those five kings to me from the cave. And they did so, and they brought out those five kings to him from the cave. The king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. 
And so it was when they brought out these five kings to Joshua that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the captains of the men of war who went before him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they drew near and they put their feet on their necks. And then Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Afterward, Joshua struck them and killed them and hanged them on five trees. And they were hanging on the trees until evening. And so it was at the time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded. And they took them down from the trees and they cast them into the cave where they had been hidden. And they laid large stones against the cave's mouth, which remain until this very day. So here's this battle that Joshua leads Israel in against this Canaanite city. And they win the battle with God's help. Since God killed more with hailstones than the army killed. They capture these five enemy kings alive. In the ancient world, it was really important that you capture the enemy leaders alive so that you could humiliate them. Everybody did it. When the Philistines, and, or maybe it was the Ammonites, I don't remember, captured some of David's men, it says they cut half their beard off and they cut their tunics, which were you know, down here, they cut them off at their, above their waist to expose their nakedness, and then they made them go home. It was more humiliating to do that to them and make them march home naked with their beard shaved off than it was to kill them. Uh, when the Babylonians came in and took Jerusalem, they put a hook in Jehoiachin's nose and they hauled him off to Babylon with a hook and a rope on his nose. Uh, everybody did it. The Romans, you've seen the scene in uh, Ben-Hur where there's the parade and the army's coming through the city. It's where Ben-Hur accidentally kicks off the, the clay tile that starts the whole story and all of his troubles. Okay, so that's a triumph. A triumph was where the Roman generals would lead in their enemy that they had captured they would lead them through the city and they'd be there in all their glory and their armor and their horses made up and their tails and manes are braided and the trumpets and the flower petals and the confetti and all this and here's the enemy kings or the enemy generals being pulled naked with their hands tied together and they're all beaten up and bloody and it was just, it was a celebration over their enemies and this is what Joshua is doing so Joshua would have stood on who would have made the enemy kings lay on their belly in the dirt and he would have stood behind them with his arms crossed as the victorious king and he would have made all all of their soldiers march in front in a line, all the soldiers that were still alive, uh, march in front and see their kings in the dirt. This is what Jesus is going to do when he returns. He's going to put Satan's face in the dirt. Come on. He's going to utterly humiliate him. There's passages in scripture that talk about it. Is going to utterly humiliate him. But notice what Joshua does. He does not take the credit for the victory of the battle. He tells the leaders of his people, come over here and you stand with your foot on the enemy's neck and you take glory for the victory. Do you see it? There's the reward of a king. Sharing his glory with the men who fought with him. Are you with me? Yeah. This is also a picture of the return of Jesus. When he comes back, he will, he will uh, finish off his enemies finally, forever. And yes, he will take their crown and we will put it on his head and we will throw our face in the ground and worship him and give him all the glory and all our crowns we will throw before him. But then he will say, stand up here. This isn't just my day, this is your day. Hello? You are part of the victorious army as well. And he shares the reward 
with his people. So the New Testament says that all of these things are examples for us. So again, the question is, what is Jesus looking for? What is he going to reward? Well, if I was a king, if I was Joshua, if I was David, if I was Jesus, what I would want is men of valor. I would want courage and boldness. I would want people who are ready for war, people who are loyal, people who are eager to serve, ready to moment's notice, willing to die for my kingdom, men who pressure each other toward excellence and bravery, people who are calm in chaos, who are unified in battle. What I can't, if I'm king, if I'm Joshua or David or Jesus, what I can't use are selfish, lazy cowards. They're of no use to me. What I can't use is people who just want to study my book. People who want to sit in the library all day and study are of no use to me. Come on, you hear what I'm saying? If I'm Jesus, I need people who are ready to fight. I'm not necessarily interested in people who are going to study all day. I can't use people who are interested in building their own business. I really can't even use people who want to stay home and guard their own family. If I'm a king, I need men who will go with me and fight. If they're going to, well, I've got to stay home, tend the farm, or take care of my kids. Okay? You're still a citizen of my kingdom, but you aren't earning any reward. If I'm Joshua or David, I'm Jesus. You still live in my realm. I'm happy you're my people, but you aren't useful. If you're just interested in your own hunting trips, paying your own bills, taking care of your own business. I'm certainly not interested, if I'm a king, if I'm David or Joshua or Jesus, I'm certainly not interested in politicians. I'm not interested in people who are in it for their own power, who have an agenda, who act like they're my advisor and my friend, but really they're just in it for their own promotion. And another thing I cannot use, if I'm a king, if I'm David or Joshua or Jesus, I cannot use good people who just stand around navel-gazing trying to be gooder. Do you hear me? The point of our Christian life is not to be well-behaved until Jesus returns. It is not to endure this life until he comes and rescues us. We've got battles to fight. And we've got a king that wants us to fight with him. And if I'm a king, I realize that probably a lot of my guys in my army don't have it all together. But if they're willing to pick up a sword and run toward the enemy with me, I'll take them. Come on, who was it that came to David? It was the outlaws, the rebels, the discontents, the drunks, those running from the law. They were the losers in life. And they gathered themselves around David and he says, if you're ready to wrestle lions with your bare hands, if you're ready to fight giants, you're mine. I don't care if you don't have it all together. Just be ready to fight. Come on. We're not good people trying to be gooder until Jesus comes back. That is not the point. That is not what he's going to reward is that we're well-behaved Boy Scouts. And then when he comes back, he's going to be happy and we're going to win a prize. And we got a battle to fight. we got a Death Star to destroy. we got an army of orcs to fight. 
however you want to think about it. We got battles to fight. And David's army, his mighty men of 1 Samuel 33, the guys, they truly did. They fought lions barehanded. They fought giants. One guy takes on an army of hundreds of men by himself, and he wins. These guys are studs. They are total losers in life. But they have courage. And they love their king. And they will do anything to fight for him or defend him. Like three of them sneak into Bethlehem behind enemy lines to get him a drink of water from his favorite well from when he was a boy. Like, David, we love you so much we would risk death to get you a cup of water. That's the kind of loyalty a king is looking for. That's what a king will reward when he comes back. Thank you for fighting for my kingdom. In the Old Testament book of Kings and Chronicles, we have a list of all the kings of Israel and, and Judah for nearly 500 years, these lines of kings. And most of them are evil. A few of them are good. But besides their interaction with the prophets and with the priests and God, there is two things that God spends time describing of even the most evil kings. God spends a couple sentences or a couple paragraphs on every one of them. He tells us the battles they fought and the construction projects they built. All through 1 Kings, 1 Chronicles, we get the report of this man's hideous sin, and then we get, but he did win this battle against this enemy, and he built this in the city of Jerusalem. That's what it says. What do kings do? They fight battles and they build their kingdom. That's what they're about. That's what they do. That's what a king does. I fight my battles and I build my kingdom. Jesus is looking for people who will fight when he needs you to fight and work when he needs you to work. In no way am I saying it's okay to forget about sin and just be who you are and, and, and live a, a careless life. No, 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 no. I'm saying that we don't have time to waste trying to just be good people. Yes, get rid of your sin. Yes, some of the battle you have to fight is your own sin. Absolutely. But the goal of life is not to be a good boy or a good girl. The goal of life is to pick up your sword, pick up your hammer, fight and build. Come on. That's what Jesus is looking for. That's what he says when he says, I have a reward and it's worth dying for. The reward is not a participation trophy. The reward is not a bribe to get us to be good until he comes back. The reward is, you won the battle. Come on. Even if you're Han Solo and you're an utter scoundrel, if you're fighting for the right side, you're going to get a reward. <laughs> Come on. Yes, Jesus is going to look at our lives and he's going to say, what value is there for me in your life? You just being well-behaved, being an Eagle Scout, doesn't help him. You may be messed up and have some real problems, but faith has value. Love has value. Self-sacrifice has value. Giving has value. Forgiveness has value. Are you going to fight when he says fight, or are you going to build when he says build? That's what he's looking for, because that's where the value is. If you want to answer this question in one verse, it is Hebrews 11.6. Here it is. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. There it is. How do you know you're going to please Jesus? Faith. What happens when you have faith? Reward. Come on. There it is.
Faith. Boldness. Courage. Loyalty. Your battle of faith may be against pain and sickness. It may be for your marriage. It may be for your children's salvation. It may be evangelism. It may be whatever it is. All of us have different battles. All of us have different accomplishments, assignments to build. Whatever it is. Sometimes a season in your life is building and working. Other times it's fighting. However that plays out. Faith. Self-sacrificing, courageous love. Faith in God is not just enduring this life and suffering through until Jesus comes and rescues us. No, we have a battle to fight and we have things to build. Because that's what kings do. It's what he's looking for. It's what he's coming to reward. So, what we're doing this morning is, this is part one of about a part 20 sermon series. We're going to start talking about faith. All right, what is faith? What is it not? How does faith speak? How can we know we have faith? How do we know what God has promised anything? We're talking about faith for healing and faith for giving and faith for serving and faith to be forgiven. We're going to talk, how can we know that we please Jesus? Because without faith, it is impossible to please God. How can we know that Jesus is pleased? We can know. You can know for sure. And my, my ultimate goal is to steer you out of this just trying to be a well-behaved person into turning you into dread champions in the kingdom of heaven. The mighty men of valor was the word from Joshua. And I, women, that includes you too, okay? All right, all you Debras out there, you can fight your battles too. Uh, but the mighty men of valor was the phrase from Joshua. David's mighty men. You would be Jesus' mighty men and women who don't just endure your life, but you fight and win. This is why. This is what all hangs on. We want to please God. Don't just live the same year of your life 72 times and then die. Seriously. How many of you have lived the same life 25 times or 42 times or 63 times? You just live the same year your sword and let's do something pick up your hammer and your trowel and let's do something let's accomplish something different than maybe we have for the last 26 or 46 or 66 years mighty men of valor let's do it faith we're going full speed ahead all right Lord, we love you. Thank you, Jesus, for your teaching. Thank you for your word to us. Thank you for your love. Thank you that you tell us what you expect, Lord, and that you are excited, you are eager, you are thrilled to meet us. You have a great reward for those who are faithful stewards, for those who are great warriors, for those who are workers in your field, for those who are servants in your household. We've all been given a unique call and assignment, Lord, but it's all the same thing. It's a life of faith, the life of self-sacrifice, the life of love, the life of grace. Lord, we need your word, we need your Holy Spirit, so that we may not just endure life 72 times and then die, but that we would live as champions, that we would win the battles that you have given us to fight. Lord, we love you. We say yes to you, Lord. We want to be your loyal and faithful servants who will fight when you say fight, who will build when you say build. We praise your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.